Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, Ken will explore a Christian theistic view of truth. Uh, Ken, you'll be addressing such questions as, how do we know we have the truth? So I think this is a podcast that uh, a lot of people look forward to. I know I am. Well, I I think we live at a time where that question of truth is is right at the center of a lot of discussion and and debate. And as as you know, there are a lot of people who don't think we can have any confidence in discovering the truth. But that's so contradictory to what we we discover in Scripture and the Christian worldview. So I'd like to start off talking a little bit about the present culture and. Uh, postmodern perspectives, uh, relativism about truth. And then uh, in preceding shows, we'll, we'll uh, touch on all of those seven points. So I really want to encourage people to get a hold of my book, uh, A World of Difference. Uh, it's out of uh, chapter five, and I discuss those seven points. So uh, we're, we're going to take this take this very seriously because I, I think one of the biggest challenges to Christianity today is the challenge of kind of a postmodern relativistic uh, zeitgeist or or worldview, if you will. Yeah. And we say on the podcast that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. So yeah. uh, that's something that uh, you take very, very seriously. And I'm sure our listeners do as well. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, what I think we're seeing in our in our culture. Uh, you know, the Germans, they have this word zeitgeist. Uh, geist really means ghost or spirit. And uh, so zeitgeist is the spirit of the age. What, what are the ideas that are kind of filtering uh, through culture? And I, I think that uh, very clearly today, there is a deep... Uh, relativization of truth, but not just truth, Joe. It's a relativization of truth, morality, and even language. And uh, that means that uh, really truth, morality, and language is in the eye of the beholder. There isn't any kind of objective truth. There is a deep sense of uh, subjectivism, the eye, you know, it's how you view it. It's in the eye of the beholder. Um, and I think that uh, one of the things that this demonstrates, Joe, is how important philosophy is. Because for a long time, I thought, well, I know about postmodernism and I know about its, its relativism, its subjectivism. Uh, I had read people like Jacques Derrida and his deconstruction of language and I was familiar with philosophers like Michel Foucault, and even before that, people like Friedrich Nietzsche and, and others. But I thought, you know, that's Ivy Tower thinking. Uh, I think the reality is that much of the ideologies we see today, Joe, are, are very much kind of a, a popularization of these ideas. Um, but it's important to be able to, to understand them. So Let's let's begin with a little bit of discussion of, about the way postmodernists think about truth, and uh, again, that 
those terms like relativism, subjectivism, you know, my truth, uh, those are those are so prevalent in the culture. So truth is relative, and that means that it's not fixed, it's not absolute. Uh, there is a, a skepticism. So, so again, relativism, subjectivism, skepticism. Uh, many within postmodern thinking would say one can never know something without question. So you can't have a, a deep knowledge of, of the truth. Uh, truth is constructed rather than discovered. We're going to discover that in Scripture, uh, you know, truth is grounded in God. It's it's seen in the world that he made. He made us to be truth seekers. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So a Christian worldview is very different than this relativism, subjectivism, uh, and skepticism. So again, in postmodernism, truth is constructed rather than discovered. That gives us a very different kind of point of view. In many ways uh, in philosophy, Joe, uh, today people have moved away from kind of uh, what I would call a realistic view of truth, a realism, uh, or what we might call a correspondence theory of truth. And I might say this, that philosophers who profess realism or a correspondence view, they claim that truth consists in a correspondence between cognitive representations and reality. Now, that's that sounds very technical, but essentially it simply means this. If your ideas correspond, if your ideas match reality, then you know the truth. If two plus two does equal four, and you believe that to be true, and your belief connects with reality, you have the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, and that idea of correspondence or a realistic, uh, a realism of truth goes back a very long time. A bit more here. Um, of course, in, in our relativistic context, what's true for one may not be true for another. Uh, people almost take it for granted. I hear it all the time in social media, in, in media in general, popular authors. What's your truth? You know, tell me your truth. And I'm thinking, well, uh, isn't there one truth? Uh, how can how can people have this kind of relativistic uh, perspective? But they do. And I don't think that most people in our culture realize how much their thinking has been shaped by critical, skeptical, philosophical ideas. So the idea that philosophy bakes no bread, uh, not so. C.S. Lewis comes to us again when he tells us that, that good philosophy has to exist if for no other reason than to confront bad philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, one truth is as valid as another, according to our kind of popularization of postmodernism. And uh, th there is even the belief, Joe, that truth can be revised without contradiction. Uh, so, you know, Aristotle would say uh, the law of non-contradiction says A cannot equal A and non-A at the same time and in the same way. But 
in postmodernism, um, you, you see it even in Nietzsche in the 19th century, you see it in Marx in the 19th century, but now the idea that ideas can contradict one another. And I might even say this, that for a long time, these postmodern ideas, they were in the literature department, they were in the philosophy department, they were in the social sciences, the humanities, but now uh, they're clearly even in areas of math and science. Mm. Um, some, and I mean, this is a radical view. I, I'm not saying that all people hold this who hold a kind of popularization of postmodern ideas, but I've heard people say that, you know, the idea of the laws of logic or the laws of science, or even of mathematics, those are just power plays on the part of the elite to kind of oppress uh, uh, people who are not in a position, you know, to have the power. And so spin and power become very important. And uh, there was even a Smithsonian museum that said that, um, the idea of cause and effect is connected with kind of a, a white colonial kind of point of view, kind of the oppressors. Well, this, this is alarming. Uh, it's, it's alarming because I think most of us always thought, you know, in math and logic, there are things you can take and hold on to. But our culture is questioning the very foundations. And, and again, it's not just in your trendy, uh, you know, uh, areas of social science or, or literature. It, it is now creeping even into the STEM disciplines. So mm -hmm. this is the reason we want to talk about some of these ideas of truth. Joe, let me let me pause and see if you want to interact with some of this. Yeah, before we go just, a a, just a question. And if it if it takes us too far afield, you can say, hold on, I'm going to get to that. But um, it, it seems that there are a lot of people in the culture who want to be complementary and tolerant towards Christianity, although they don't subscribe to it. And they would say, yeah, you guys have some truth, but there are 7 billion people, now 8 billion people on the planet. So isn't it a bit arrogant to assume that you have the truth, and I know you've you've talked and written about the work of uh, is it John Hick? Do I have the name right? Yeah, uh, right. We're all, yes. we're all groping, and maybe we got a part of part of the truth. Uh, if that's if a bit later on, you can say so. Otherwise, uh, that would be my question. No, oh, I think that that's uh, I, I think that your assessment is correct. I think there are many people that kind of push back against uh, the Bible. They push back against kind of a classical Christian orthodoxy uh, because they perceive it to be intolerant. Uh, you know, I when I when I write and talk about these ideas, I say, look, um, I, I think that Christians should be both tolerant and intolerant. And and there I'm not uh, denying the law of non-contradiction because I'm using the terms in two different areas. I think we ought to be quite intolerant of of bad ideas, ideas that are that are not reasonable, uh, ideas that uh, are not workable. Or sometimes they're not even understandable. So we should be tolerant of of bad ideas, ideas that 
that hurt our culture, that damage, uh, you know, human flourishing. Um, I don't think, uh, I think by distinguishing between being intolerant of ideas doesn't mean that we're hateful or mean uh, when it comes to people. Uh, we should indeed be tolerant of people. We have to recognize that we live in a very diverse culture. Uh, Joe, you and I grew up in Southern California. We've covered some of the same uh, area uh, in our youth. Um, we realize that uh, Southern California has a very diverse uh, population. It's true ethnically. It's true religiously. It's it's true in every sense. I mean, right from here at the RTB office, you don't you don't have to go very far, and you can find a mosque. You can find a Hindu temple. Uh, you can go on the web and find any religion or skepticism. So we live in a very diverse place, and I think we certainly do need to recognize that human beings are made in the image of God. We should not be uh, intolerant in the bad sense. We, we should be respectful. I mean, we believe God made everybody in his image. We believe everybody is the recipient of general revelation, and everyone experiences the common grace of God. So we can learn from other people who hold other positions. So we sh I, I would again emphasize, I'm intolerant of bad ideas. I'm intolerant of things that are not true, that are not reasonable, that are not moral. But I, I have a deep uh, empathy for people. And, uh, you know, this is a very confusing time in which we live. Uh, people are kind of asking uh, foundational questions, you know, about, uh, about you know, a person's sexuality, a person's gender, about what it means to be a human being. Well, we can't shy away from these types of issues. Uh, Christianity is, I think, first of all, a set of beliefs. It's a collection of values. It's a way of life. So we should be tolerant in the best sense of the term toward others. That means respectable. We, we treat people with respect. We treat them with dignity. We have a sense of, of empathy, but we have to stand against the truth uh, or we will be held accountable uh, by the God of truth. So that, that's kind of my take on that. And I, I think your, your comment is, is right on target. So let's talk a little bit. We'll at least get this uh, discussion going about a, a Christian theistic view of truth. And I'm using the word theism there to, to kind of talk about a classical worldview approach. This is, this is not the private Ken Samples view. This isn't uh, just the RTB view. This is kind of a classical view, uh, a biblical, a historic Christian approach. So the Bible is not a uh, philosophical textbook. So we're not surprised by the fact that it doesn't have a technical philosophical discussion of the theory of truth. But scripture speaks uh, significantly about truth, that, that uh, God is the absolute truth in himself, and that he reveals the truth of himself. Uh, he reveals truth about human beings and our our created and fallen condition. 
And he also introduces us uh, to Jesus Christ, who is who is truth incarnate. So the Bible speaks a lot about truth, and uh, there are biblical terms for truth. The Hebrew is emet, Greek is aletheia, and both of those words basically mean the same thing. They convey ideas about faithfulness, reliability, uh, stability, honesty, and they convey the idea of conformity to reality or fact. Uh, the Bible speaks about accuracy, and truth is always uh, the opposite of of error. So I think we can we can say that while the Bible doesn't offer a technical philosophical, it doesn't doesn't say w we take a realistic a realism view of truth or a correspondence. It does I convey those ideas, Joe, that. Uh, that truth is the idea that conforms to the nature of reality. If you believe Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Savior of the world, and he indeed is that, then you know the truth. If you believe that God is the creator, uh, and he is indeed the creator, you know the truth. And if you believe scripture is a revelation from God, and you have confidence that language is not perfect, no human language is ever perfect, but that language is a reliable source for communicating truth, uh, then we stand at odds with kind of this postmodern relativism, postmodern subjectivism, postmodern skepticism. Uh, and I, I, again, I think it's so important that Christians are able to kind of see what's happening in our culture. There, there are reasons behind the idea where people are redefining marriage. There are reasons why people are redefining uh, our identity as human beings, our gender, our sexuality. Uh, this postmodern spirit doesn't emphasize the objective, but the subjective. The, the postmodern secular postmodernism, it doesn't start with God. It doesn't start with an objective reality that is transcendent. It starts with the human person. And so God is not part of the equation. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous German philosopher, um, he said that uh, God is dead. Uh, and what he meant by that is while all of Western civilization uh, and by the way, Joe, uh, Western civilization used to just be called Christendom. Uh, it's only since uh, a, a movement away from uh, Christianity that it get the idea, well, th this is a Western civilization. Uh, a number of centuries ago, Western civilization is the same thing as Christendom. It's the way of looking at uh, a, a historic Christian point of view. Well, Nietzsche says God doesn't exist, and, and he says that creates a big problem. The problem it creates is uh, our morality is dependent upon God. Uh, our capacity to embrace truth is dependent upon God. Even science, Nietzsche has a quote where he says that, that, that uh, the scientific discipline is dependent upon the idea of God, that 
he created an ordered world and he created human beings that could uh, uh, track the intelligibility of the world. Well, what do we do when God's out of the picture? Well, then it all becomes power. Uh, it becomes our capacity. I have to create a meaningful life for myself because God doesn't exist to do that. I have to create my own morality. Language means what we want it to mean. Um, uh, and, and so language is, is filled with these ideas of contradicting ideas. So, you know, uh, again, uh, let me come back to this point that I, I've made. I used to think postmodernism was just one of those very speculative, uh, you know, very illogical uh, worldview that only Ivy League uh, professors could hold. That's not true. Uh, it has come into our society. And, you know, all you need to do is turn on the television. All you need to do is go on social media. You have people uh, talking in terms of, of uh, not objective truth, but subjective truth. And uh, so uh, philosophy does bake uh, bread. Um, it's important to have some kind of philosophical uh, sophistication, if you will. So that's kind of the, the starting point there. Uh, a little bit more about what classical Christianity has thought about truth. Um, again, a realism, and what we mean by that is that there is a reality of truth that is outside of us and independent of us. There are things, uh, concepts and truths that exist out there, uh, and we have the capacity not to maybe totally comprehend them, but but we can track with them. We can know truth, and, and it's applicable. And again, this idea of correspondence, here I'm going to give you a quotation by one of my philosophical friends. Uh, this is J.P. Moreland, who teaches at Biola, and uh, uh, I've always appreciated his uh, philosophical ideas. Well, he wrote a book with William Lane Craig, who our audience probably knows well. And this is what they say about a correspondence theory of truth. They say it's the idea that truth is a matter of a proposition, that is a belief, thought, statement, representation, corresponding to reality. Truth obtains when reality is the way a proposition represents it to be. So I have an idea in my mind, and I want to convey that idea in my article. And so I, I write out a proposition or a statement, a, tr a truth claim. If that idea in my mind that's then expressed in my article, if it matches reality, then I have the truth. But again, all of that means a correspondence view of truth, a, a, a realist view of truth. It means that truth does, in fact, exist. And we can, to some extent, apprehend it. We can know it. Uh, of course, I think here of, uh, of, you know, Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Mm -hmm. I think of Jesus. You can know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Uh, these are these are such critical 
uh, areas. Uh, again, I, I don't want to leave this without helping people to, to know what we mean by a realist view of truth, a correspondence. We could say that truth equates or represents or matches reality. So an individual's thinking on a, a particular topic, if it corresponds to, to the actual state of affairs, then he or she knows the truth. So again, it chorus, a correspondence view of truth. Now, uh, again, the Bible doesn't give us an epistemology or uh, a technical area of discussing knowledge and truth. But here's a quotation from uh, two biblical scholars, D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo. They say this, uh, though truth in scripture can refer to more than a propositional truth, propositional truth certainly lies within its embrace. Uh, and, and so when the Bible talks about a revelation from God, when it talks about God being truth, Jesus being truth incarnate, the truth of the gospel, it, it is conveying the idea that your beliefs match or correspond or equate with what's real. Uh, I take time to kind of develop that, Joe, because I, I want people to feel how far we've moved away from these kind of fundamental ideas. And what's kind of scary, um, it, if I can be perfectly candid, is I think how far our culture has kind of degraded, uh, even, over the, even over my adulthood. Uh, even when I was a young boy, um, these ideas of, of truth being a reality that you could know, uh, that the Bible was a revelation that you could trust, um, you know, where is our culture going? Um, St. Augustine, uh, he lived in the 5th century, and uh, he lived in a scary time. Uh, the civilization that he had grown up and been educated in uh, and had lived in, uh, the Roman Empire was coming apart. The barbarians were at the gates. They'd already sacked Rome. Uh, he thought, man, this is the end of civilization. Well, in, in some ways, we see the cycles uh, in in history and in culture, uh, it couldn't be easy for people living at the time to think, wow, the very foundation of our civilization and society in the Roman world is coming apart. Well, the good news is God is the, uh, he is ultimate truth. He is also the sovereign creator and providential sustainer of society. Um, and I think we have to kind of push back, but we push back against bad ideas, uh, not disrespecting people, but uh, recognizing you can come to some fundamental bad ideas. So thoughts there uh, before we look at uh, maybe a couple more ideas. Uh, no, I'm tracking and I appreciate uh, your thoughts, Ken. Okay. All right. Here is my first of my seven points that the classical theistic view of truth is that God is the ultimate truth. There's plenty of truths with a lowercase t. There's truths of mathematics, and there's truths of logic, and there are, uh, you know, truths uh, in, in language in all of these disciplines. But then there is truth with a capital T, and, and that's God. 
God is the ultimate truth. In the Bible, God is describes himself as being real and true and alive. And of course, this is the uh, the opposite of uh, the false gods who are unreal. Instead of instead of real, they're unreal. Instead of true, they're false. Instead of being alive and and again before the burning bush, this is God is existence itself. I, I think to some degree Thomas is right that that God is not just a being but being in existence. And I don't think you have to be Catholic to believe that. I think most Christian classical theologians believe to some degree that uh, God is not made up of parts, that that part of God's being is to exist itself. So God is the ultimate truth, and uh, there are plenty of counterfeits out there. I mean, I mean, think of Think of what the New Testament has to say. John says, don't believe every claim. Don't believe every position. Uh, put them to the test because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are many counterfeit ideas. And I think it's critical that uh, if we are going to educate our children from a Christian worldview point of view, that we teach them uh, what what historic Christianity has said about truth and knowledge and values and language, and then also illustrate that there are conflicts. Uh, Ken, a question at this point. Do you think it might be possible, and I don't want to put this on people if it's not true, uh, do you think it's possible for those who don't hold to the view of divine simplicity that you just mentioned, that it's possible that God can be learning things? And if so, have we misconstrued parts of the Bible that uh, we uh, we don't prefer what, what they're saying about uh, certain practices? So uh, we, can, we can continue to learn things and maybe God is learning things and kind of adjusting truth to fit what the cultural trends are. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, I think I do. Um, well, I, I think the way I would approach it is this. I was thinking about this the other day, that that I, I think all Christian traditions believe in simplicity in this sense, that God doesn't have any parts. Uh, God is uh, an invisible spiritual being. He doesn't have just a collection of, of, of attributes. Now you can go further and go more deeply into Thomas Aquinas's ideas where God is not a being, but he is existence itself. But what's critical, I think, to understand is God is not just a big human being. God doesn't go through a process of thought where he takes in data and analyzes it and draws the right conclusion and then says, aha, I've learned something. God is an infinite being. He knows all things. He knows them intuitively. God doesn't learn things. Now, what, what makes that position, I think, difficult for, for some Christians is when you talk about God being outside of time and space, and you talk about uh, God not going through a succession of moments or God not learning things. I mean, people like Augustine, 
uh, Aquinas, uh, uh, Anselm, Luther, Calvin, they, they would say that uh, God knows all things immediately. He He's not a temporal being where, you know, he, he knows something uh, and then he learns new ideas. Of course, that can make God seem rather impersonal. How can this God be loving? How can this God... Uh, you know, why do we have the language in the new in the Old Testament where it it seems like God is described as, oh, I repent that I ever made man, or mm -hmm. you know, that God becomes angry and these kinds of things. I think in some respects, Joe, uh, even people in the ancient world realized that language was a very critical idea, that some some language is univocal. Some things we say about God match one-to-one, -one, but there's also uh, paradoxical ideas, and there there are uh, metaphorical language and things of that nature. So I, I, think, I think all of the conservative theological traditions hold some form of simplicity, uh, maybe not to the same degree. I mean, some people push back against Thomas, and they say, well, look, if you're saying God has no parts and and you cannot you cannot distinguish between God's attributes, then uh, what does that do for the Trinity? Uh, but see, Thomas would say, well, we can distinguish the persons within the Godhead, but they're not separate. Um, and and God's uh, God's omnipotence. Uh, is a correlate of his omniscience. God's justice is correlated in his love. God can't be love without justice. He can't be really a good being without love and justice. So to some degree, um, uh, reading uh, 13th century medieval philosophers can become very technical. But I think the reality is that most conservative evangelical Protestants today would find in Thomas Aquinas a huge ally. Um, you know, he had deep beliefs about the, the, the kind of truth claims we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, let me go a little bit further. The ultimate veracity of God's moral character demands reliability and, and faithfulness. Uh, he has these attributes that tell us we can trust him, that he is true, that he is he is real, that that he is good. And I think of uh, Jesus in John 17, 3. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, you, whom you have sent. Uh, you know, Christians believe that God is ultimate truth. But this leads us into that second second point of my seven, that Jesus Christ is the truth of God incarnate. I mean, we have people today who are raising, I think, reasonable questions about the hiddenness of God. But I think you have to think about the hiddenness of God in the context of classical Christianity that says God has the second person of the Trinity— has taken human nature and become man. And so uh, God is the ultimate truth, but Jesus Christ as an extension of Yahweh who lived in the time-space world, who was born 
maybe in uh, 4 to 2 BC and died in 30 or 33 AD, that Jesus Christ was the truth of God in the flesh. So God's visited this planet. God has come uh, to us. And again, think about that extraordinary claim. Um, I think it was J.I. Packer who said, this idea that God would become a man, um, it's its more extraordinary than, than any of the claims that you see in literature or fiction. Uh, it's this extraordinary uh, reality. And and Joe, what's interesting today, as compared to uh, the ancient world in which Jesus lived in, is the idea that God would become a man. Whoa! For the ancient world, that was very difficult. It was almost impossible for them to accept the, that God would limit himself, that he would take the nature of a servant, that he would, uh, you know, uh, give up all the prerogatives of the glory of, of uh, heaven and become a lowly human being, that he would condescend. Oh, and of course, you know, some of the philosophies of the time, they thought matter was evil. Think of Gnosticism and Docetism. They thought God wouldn't become an actual human being. He wouldn't take a real human nature. Of course, now it's flipped. We, we're cool with Jesus being a man. It's the idea of being God that puts us off. So two very different kind of uh, worlds in which people uh, live in. So Jesus of Nazareth, he's the truth of God in human flesh. And uh, God's truth uh, permeates the world that he made. Uh, you know, we've talked on this program about the transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. Well, those are, those are remarkable things. A transcendental is a reality that exists beyond the time-space world. Uh, Christians think that God is truth, goodness, and beauty, mm. that that reflects who he is. Uh, and yet, in creating the cosmos, uh, those qualities are reflected in the world. And so in the world, we discover truth. In, in the world, we discover goodness. We discover beauty. In fact, somebody like a Peter Kraft, uh, the Catholic philosopher, he would say everything to some degree or another, reflects truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, even, even things that uh, we're troubled by, uh, the idea that there, there is a certain truth, goodness, and beauty, uh, even in those things. Uh, I often think sometimes the things that are most beautiful are dangerous. I mean, uh, you know, when, when I see a, a, a big cat go into the Amazon and pull a caiman out by the neck. And uh, I'm thinking, what in the world is this? Uh, how is this cat able to do that? Well, these are ferocious animals. Or you and I, we love the outdoors. Uh, you look at, you know, I think of Yosemite here in California. Uh, a lot of people get killed because they're so attracted by the, this natural beauty they don't realize how dangerous it can be. Well, God created a world that reflects that truth, goodness, and beauty. 
And so when we look at nature, we see something about his attributes. Um, I love the passage in, in uh, uh, the Psalm 19. The Hebrew says, the heavens keep on declaring the glory of God. Mm. It's perpetual. It's unending. Uh, now, someone like a Hugh Ross or a, a Dave Rogstad, they would say, well, we don't quite see the the heavens the way maybe Abraham did or maybe the way Jesus did. <clears throat> I remember in the late 70s, I went to I went with a Catholic community to Baja, California, and Joe, because there were was very few people living in the desert region, I could see stars and I could see shooting stars, you know, 15, 20 a night. Um, think of what people in the ancient world before, uh, you know, bef before people had telescopes, before people had uh, civilization with all of the lights. So one of the reasons the world is so enticing to us, and one of the reasons I think Paul says it's so tempting to become an idolater is because that truth, goodness, and beauty to some degree is reflected all around us. And some people settle for it rather than holding out for the beatific vision. And again, that means you're going to see. Now, now I don't know exactly, that may be a metaphor, but we're somehow going to see God face to face. There's going to be an intimacy. I mean, imagine that ultimate truth, goodness, and beauty. And we're told that that came to earth in a person. Mm. I mean, I remember Tim Keller, um, Presbyterian, pretty conservative in his views, used to teach at Westminster in his very early days. Uh, Tim Keller started a church in Manhattan that was very popular, uh, a reformed guy. You know, he used to say that in his own experience, because he wrote a book about the reasons for God, he was interested in apologetics, he was interested in evangelism. Uh, I remember him saying one time that people in his experience, people have to want Christianity to be true before they could come to believe that it is true. This is kind of that imaginative apologetics, right? C.S. Lewis and Tolkien kind of pitched these ideas Joe, one of the reasons I wrote the latest book that I worked on, Christianity Cross-Examined, was I thought um, I've seen a change. Uh, people used to ask me truth questions when I was on the Bible Answer Man or I'd go to a, a community college and give a lecture. They'd ask me truth questions. Does God exist? Uh, is Jesus God in human flesh? Uh, now... Uh, I and by now I mean the last fifteen years. They asked me whether Christianity is good. What what about uh, what about the the how about the church that uh, colonized the new world and oppressed people? So I thought I think today I need a, an apologetic text that will not only talk about the truth of Christianity but also why I think it's so good. Uh, and that sometimes we misunderstand uh, the dark sides uh, of the faith. So this idea, uh, Jesus is the God-man, he says in 
one of the passages I I memorized as a very young Christian, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Wow. I mean, who was this? Who was this person? And again, I go back to the Gospel of John, the the first gospel uh, in which Uh, I read in the first gospel in which I memorized scripture, I think of John 1, 14, and the word, the logos, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is not a peripheral issue, Joe. Um, uh, One of the reasons I... Uh, want to talk about it on the podcast and and to go into more detail and to show these contrasts. I think one of the most important issues of our time is the question of what is truth and how do we discover it and how how do different philosophies define it? So we're back to Pontius Pilate. What is the truth? Hmm. Um, you know, th- these are these are issues. I think we we definitely have to wrestle with. We have to talk with our children about. We have to, in our churches, we need to inform people about the prism and the culture in which we live. And and why do, why is there such polarization? I think part of the political polarization that we experience over the last decade or so has to do with the emergence of a very different worldview. So if God doesn't exist and the Bible is not a revelation from God, then maybe all we got is politics mm. and politics becomes power. Mm. All right. How about, how about one more? And I can just kind of introduce this and uh, we'll, we'll come back to it in, in the next program. All right. A third point of truth is that all truth is God's truth and he's revealed it to humankind. So, God is the ultimate truth. Jesus is truth incarnate. And all truth is God's truth. And he's revealed it to to human beings. And so we're already getting into the idea of the two books, that if God is the author of the book of nature, then the truths of science, the truths of mathematics, the truths of logic, uh, the, the truths of of poetry, whatever it may be, those truths come to us from God. And human beings, because we're made in the image of God, we can grasp the truth. I mean, animals are incredibly amazing. Uh, I think of the two dogs that uh, Joan and I have. I mean, these dogs, their scent, their sense of smell is much superior to, to me and Joan. Their eyesight is better. They're hearing. I mean, they hear things uh, a minute or two before I, oh, yeah, what's happening here? But what's interesting is that whatever whatever conscious these dogs have, and I can see why people love dog. I mean, they were, they were the first that were, uh, you know, uh, shaped by human beings. Uh, humans domesticated them and they provide uh, not only uh, enjoyment but they they interact with us 
But, but what's interesting, Joe, is that as remarkable as these animals are, and I love them, and I, I, Joan and I sometimes think, well, man, you know how much it's going to hurt when we lose one of these pups? We've become so attached to them. But these, these dogs don't show any sign of uh, having the capacity to relate an idea in the cognitive mind and matching it toward reality. Um, that there is a difference. Uh, part of being made in the image of God, I think it is, it is part of our structure. We're able to reason through logic and morality. We're spiritual beings, uh, if you will. So this idea that, that when human thought co coheres and corresponds with reality, we're able to uh, apprehend the truth, uh, that we can discover uh, truth in revelation, we can study logic, we can study philosophy, history, literature, science, values, law, we can, we can know the, tr the truth of God. Why? Because, well, we are like God, of course, in a finite way, and now in a fallen way, but we we are different, not just in degree, but we're different uh, in kind. And that puts us in a position to be able to embrace not only natural theology or natural revelation or the book of nature, but also to be able to understand uh, the scriptures, to understand uh, the, the life of Jesus. And here's, a, I want to close on this. This is a quotation by Robert A. Harris. He's a Christian thinker. He says, there is no conflict between scriptural truth and any other truth. Apparent conflicts involve conflicts of interpretation, either of scripture or of external facts. All truth is God's truth, and God does not contradict himself. And I'll close with this passage. This is John 17, 17. Jesus prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So those are three of my seven points. Again, um, what I like about A World of Difference is that it, it gives you, uh, I think, the tools to think in a worldviewish type of manner, and it, it explains uh, Christian philosophical and theological ideas in a way that I think if you work with it, you can really get a lot of good use out of it. I recently heard that uh, Krista Bontrager, who was long time worked here and worked with you and me uh, at RTB, that she's working on a doctoral degree and they were using a world of difference in her doctoral classes. Well, I, I also know that we used to use it in the Sunday school classes as well. So God be praised that uh, there are books we can use to kind of help us grow in our faith and our understanding of truth. Hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you for your uh, comments, uh, Ken. Your your teaching, you're, you're really you're a, you're a lecturer, and a lot of people have come to appreciate that about you. I know I have. So thank you, and I'm looking forward to more of this. We've been talking about a Christian theistic view of truth, uh, and we want to recommend Ken's book, once again, A World of Difference. You can find it here at reasons.org. Uh, let us know your comments and questions. You can reach out to Ken via Twitter 
That's at RTB underscore K samples. We'll be glad to read your comment here. In fact, uh, let me read a couple of that have come in, Ken. Uh, one of them says, I've really enjoyed reading your books and have gained valuable and applicable knowledge. Thank you. This is Sandy Thompson. And another person has written in, you took time to answer one of my questions years ago. Just want to say that I love you and appreciate your work. Dr. Joshua Rasmussen, mm -hmm. Associate Professor of Philosophy at Azusa Pacific University. He's a, I, I'm really humbled by that, Joe. He is a big name. I think one of the leading Christian philosophers in our in our present time. So wow. boy, that was, uh, I, I appreciate his grace so much. Yeah. Thank you for those and keep them coming. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. Until next time, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.